I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team, to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than on a couch? So, our interview today is with Dr. Lena Wen, the former president of Planned Parenthood. We're going to get into the interview in just a second, but we want to talk about it for a minute first. The past few weeks have been pretty difficult for Dr. Wen and Planned Parenthood. Just a few days after we recorded the interview with her, she and Planned Parenthood parted ways. We reached out to both Dr. Wen and Planned Parenthood. The organization sent us a statement in which they thanked Dr. Wen for her service and announced their new interim president. But they didn't give any specifics. Reportedly, there had been some issues with her management style. We invited Dr. Wen to come back and speak with us, but she's not giving interviews right now. She told us she's glad to be back in Baltimore, spending time with her husband and young son. And she told us that she stands by the statement that she put up on Twitter. In that statement, she said that she and Planned Parenthood had, quote, philosophical differences over the direction and future of the organization. She wrote that she wanted to focus on the, quote, broad range of health services Planned Parenthood offers, but that the board wanted to double down on abortion rights advocacy. I feel like that really came out in our interview with her, uh, that she very clearly sees herself as a doctor and health advocate first and foremost, and that she really honed in on all of the other things that Planned Parenthood offers. Dr. Wen has had a fascinating career, even before she took the helm at Planned Parenthood, and most of the interview is about that, how she overcame incredible odds, her story growing up. It's really worth a listen. So let's get into it. Please welcome Dr. Lena Wen to the couch. She's been described as the wonderkin daughter of Chinese immigrants. She moved to the States in elementary school, but by the age of 13, she had signed up for early admission to college. At 18, Lena graduated summa cum laude with a degree in biochemistry. By 24, she had finished med school and worked for a year with the World Health Organization in Geneva and in Rwanda. Wait. There's more. She was a Rhodes Scholar and got two additional master's degrees from Oxford, Modern Chinese Studies and Econ slash Social History. Then Dr. Wen went to Boston for her residency in emergency medicine, wrote a pretty divisive book about healthcare, gave a TED Talk, and in 2014 became Baltimore's health commissioner, right before she turned 32. At the age of 35, Dr. Wen was tapped to lead Planned Parenthood, becoming the first physician to do so in half a century. This year, she made Time's 100 Most Influential People's List, and she's with us today. I feel like getting up before 7 a.m. was was my accomplishment (laughs) for the day. Um, Lena, thank you so much, and welcome to the couch. Thank you both very much, Carly and Danielle. I listen to you all and am so glad to be here with you today. Oh, that's so sweet of you. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, You obviously have quite an an extensive resume um, and did quite a lot at a very uh, young age. What is something that is not on your resume? Tell us one thing about your career that we wouldn't find on LinkedIn. I'll give you two things that are core to my identity. One, as you mentioned, is that I'm an immigrant. 
I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight, and my parents and I depended on Medicaid, food stamps. We depended on Planned Parenthood, among others, for our health care. And that identity of being an immigrant matters so much to me now, especially in these times. Had we not been so lucky and have gotten the immigration status when we did, I would be here today as a dreamer. The second thing about who I am is that I'm a mother. I have a son, Eli, who is nearly two years old and who is the light of my life. And Eli is also why I do the work that I do as a physician, as a public health leader, and as an advocate and fighter for our patients and their rights and their futures. We're going to get into your work with Planned Parenthood. That's the reason why you're in the spotlight now. But we want to back up a bit and talk about how you got here. Um, So you were born in China and didn't come to the U.S. until you were eight years old. Um, Your father was a political dissident, and you were basically escaping persecution. Um, Then somehow you come to the United States. Just a few years later, you're a 13-year-old signing up for college. This sounds like a movie. How did you actually do that? Like, how are you a 13-year-old signing up for college? (laughs) Well, I definitely didn't see my life as a movie at that time or now. It was actually very difficult circumstances that led us to where we were. I mean, my parents really struggled. We also were so close. We were within weeks of losing our immigration status. Um, we literally came within, um, it was just a matter of of time. I mean, I think we had all these contingencies for what would happen if we became undocumented. And it really is just pure luck that we were able to stay in the country. And I also was facing additional struggles too. I grew up with a stutter, a severe speech impediment that... At that time, I did not want to acknowledge. And it was this great source of shame and fear that held me back from being open and even having friends early on. And so I lived the first long time of my life, really until my 20s, without having real friendships and meaningful relationships. And so I really appreciate your kind words now about my career. I think at the time and for so long, I saw it as a great vulnerability and a source of shame and not as something that I was proud of. You know, I I think about the circumstances that you and your family were under and, you know, you were at such a young age. But the fact that you, you know, were able to even to get yourself to sign up for college at 13 years old, where did that drive come from? And how did you tap into that while also dealing with what sounds like, you know, a lot of just anxiety around something like a stutter? Part of it was my mom, who is my hero and who I miss every single day. She died from cancer now um, about 10 years ago. And I think about her all the time, especially as I'm a mother myself now, and my mother loved children, and she would have loved nothing more than to meet my son. She had this drive, and she always encouraged me that my North Star should always be my passion. 
And my passion from an early age was service. I mean, I saw people in my neighborhood die because they didn't have access to healthcare. I mean, I was that annoying kid who always knew that I wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor because I saw people around me go without access to healthcare. I saw them literally die. I had um, a neighbor who had asthma, was a kid who had asthma, who was just a couple years younger than me. And I think I was 10 at the time and he was eight. And he died from an asthma attack because his grandmother was too afraid to call for help because they were undocumented immigrants. Um, And those were the images that were so ingrained in me. And my mother taught me to turn that pain into my purpose and to channel that into my passion. The other part of how I got to how I got through college and got into medical school was I was really fortunate to have met mentors along the way. I I remember when I first got into college, I was looking for a job because I needed to support myself and um and I went to interview in chemistry labs. There was a professor there who asked me at the time, "What do you want to do?" And I was so scared to tell him that my goal was to become a doctor because I thought that he would laugh. I thought nobody would believe me that I could actually become a doctor because who was I? And I didn't know doctors. I mean, I didn't know what it would take to get there. And I told him that I wanted to be a lab tech because I knew lab techs. And I thought I could, I was interviewing for a job at a lab. I could become a lab tech. He hired me to be, to work in his lab and to learn to become a lab tech. And over time, he would continue to ask me, but what's your dream? What do you really want to do? And one day I told him that I wanted to become a doctor. And he said, okay, I can help you to do that. And he connected me with his former students who now are, who at that time became medical students and doctors. And that made all the difference in my life. And that's why teaching and mentoring is such an important part of what I do now. When you go back to yourself at at that age when you um, can't even say that you want to be a doctor and yet, you know, you find this great mentor. What's some advice you can give our listeners who I think are looking for mentors themselves but don't know how to approach people or don't necessarily have that confidence? I actually think that the way that I approached it when I was younger was wrong. And I just really got lucky. I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, and there was a poignant section of the book that really I thought, oh, my goodness, I did that. And it was where she was talking about how men would approach potential mentors by asking them a question. Women approach potential mentors by asking them to be a mentor, (laughs) which is like asking someone that you are on a first date with, will you be my boyfriend? (laughs) Right. Which is... You know, just it's not the way to do things. And often women get rejected and men get these mentors because they're engaging them on a professional level. I read that and I thought, wow, I totally did that. And it just was very lucky for me that these incredible people throughout my life have taken me under their wings and became my mentors, even though I approached it the, the wrong way. I would encourage my younger self and and all people listening, um, not just women, but everyone listening, to engage on that professional level, to ask people for professional advice, 
to ask them to engage on professional questions, and over time, develop that mentoring relationship. And also know that mentoring is two ways. It's not just about what it is that potential mentor can bring to you, but what can you bring to that mentor? Some of the best relationships that I've established are because I did something for the mentor. I offered to write research papers for them, to um, do research for them, um, help them with speeches that they had coming up. I wanted that mentor to succeed as much as they wanted me to succeed, and it was that um, that relationship of caring and this two-way street that I think really makes a difference. And one more thing too, know that everyone has the imposter syndrome. That just even if you don't think that that you could be someone else's mentor, I guarantee you that there is someone out there. It could be a younger sibling or a younger cousin or somebody else in the neighborhood, but there is somebody out there who is looking up to you, and sees you as their mentor and role model. I want to talk about um, what happened after med school. So you. As you said, you know, you you were able to enroll early. You were able to to graduate early. You were able to build out a mentorship network, which um, obviously went did so much for you. You finish med school. You do your residency in the emergency room at Mass General in Boston, and then you co-author a book and launch a website about transparency in medicine. And that shook things up a little bit in a major way. Uh, tell us about. What did you do or, or write that um, became so divisive for people? This is another example of the pain that became my purpose and passion. I never intended to write a book on patient advocacy. Um, I never intended to become a patient advocate. I wanted to become an ER doctor. I wanted to become the physician who would never turn anyone away. And I really thought that that that's the one thing that I wanted to do with my life, to go into the ER, then work in the ER. I can treat everyone, no matter how old they are, whether they have health insurance, whether they can pay. I mean, that was my dream. And that's what I went to medical school and residency to do. When I was a medical student, though, my mother was misdiagnosed for more than a year before she was finally diagnosed with what turned out to be metastatic cancer. She, by the time she was diagnosed, had breast cancer that had spread to her lungs, her bones, her brain. And she had gone through a year of going to her doctor and saying something was terribly wrong, that she was tired and couldn't breathe, and she kept on getting diagnosed with depression or anxiety and just wasn't listened to. I was going through the experience of being her caregiver at an age where, well, frankly, I don't think anyone intends and plans to become a caregiver, and you don't know what's involved until you do. But at the same time that I became her caregiver and was helping her with her with her medical situation, was the same time that I was going through my training in medical school and then in residency, and I saw this profound disconnect between. What it is that patients and family members are trying to get, which is they just want good medical care, compassionate, humane, dignified medical care, and at the same time, 
physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals are also trying to do the right thing. They're not trying to harm people. They're not trying to cause medical error or or um, or provide inhumane care. But there was that disconnect that was happening, and so that's what led to a another chapter in my life, which was writing a book and becoming a patient and family advocate and aiming for a new level of transparency between physicians, patients, and also within the healthcare system. And I think that's similar types of work that I've continued to do, this idea of holding our patients and the people that we serve as our North Star. That um, push for transparency generated in what we've read about, which was a a lot of responses that contained hate mail. I'm sure that this is not the last time in your career that you've you've gotten sharp responses to things, but it it might have been the first. Can you talk to me about what it's like to put something out there that you believe in and get that response? How do you deal with the haters? I mean, you're right. In my job now as the head of Planned Parenthood, I get a lot of um, of unhappy messages. All I have to do is look at Twitter to um, to see what some of these messages are. And by the way, um, some of the most vitriolic messages are not directed at me. They're directed at my family. They're directed at my son. That's when it's extremely hard. But at that time, when... I was dealing with um, with hate mail for my campaign for patients and families. And actually, similarly to what I'm dealing with now with Planned Parenthood, it actually isn't so bad because I focus on what it is that I'm doing. Everything that I did then, everything that I'm doing now is for the people that I serve. It is standing on the right side of history. It's siding with medicine, siding with science, siding with public health. And at the end of the day, that's what makes it all worth it, that this is the right thing to do for the people that I serve. So after this period, you you relatively quickly got tapped to become Baltimore's health commissioner, which is leading an entire city's public health program. What did you think when you were approached? Were you surprised? Were you scared? Well, it was a job that I very much wanted. I applied for the job. Um, I um, I did a ton of research and talked to dozens of people in the city. I'm. Um, it was my dream job to be the doctor for my city. Working in the ER, I saw that it wasn't just health care that people need, that they need, and it's not only health insurance and affordable medications that they need. There are also so many other things that make people healthy or unhealthy, like the air that we breathe, the housing that we have, the food that we have access to. And there are so many other factors that I could not make a difference in the ER, but I thought I could address through public health, through policies that city government is able to set and intimately affect our patients' lives and their health outcomes. And I wanted to work for the city of Baltimore, where there are profound health disparities. The fact that a child born today in Baltimore, which is my city, and I still live in Baltimore now, but the fact that a child born today can expect to live 65 years or 85 years, depending only on the zip code that he happens to be born into. I mean, it's to fight those profound health disparities that 
I wanted to have this job. And so I was given the opportunity of a lifetime to serve my city, to become the doctor for my city. And I'm really proud of the team that I assembled in in Baltimore to do things like fight the opioid epidemic and reduce infant mortality um, and um, and so many other things that really tackle the social determinants of health and the health disparities that are bending the arc of our universe away from justice. You get this job, um, which you've said was a dream job, and you tackle some major problems in Baltimore. Um, you sued the government for funds for sex ed, and you made naloxone free. Did you ever get nervous about making change? For our listeners who don't know what naloxone is, it would be great if you can explain. Absolutely. When I first came into um, into Baltimore, we were facing an epidemic of opioid overdose deaths. And in the ER, I've given naloxone, which is the, op- the antidote to opioids like heroin. I've given naloxone hundreds of times, and I've seen how someone who would otherwise be dead, would be walking and talking within seconds of getting this medication. So we got the legislation changed, and I issued a standing order, which is a blanket prescription for naloxone to every single one of our 620,000 residents in the city of Baltimore. It's a little bit scary to be writing your name, your signature, on 620,000 prescriptions. But as a result of that, blanket prescription as a result of the trainings that we did across our city. I mean, there was literally nowhere that we would not go to do for training. We went to bus shelters, to restaurants and bars, to housing, to wherever it is that people were. Um, As a result of all of this, everyday residents saved nearly 3,000 lives in Baltimore within three years. And I will always be so proud of this work because this is life-saving, life-changing work for thousands of individuals, their families, and their communities. So I want to transition to to where you are today, which was four years after your work in Baltimore, you got a call uh, recently, and that was to become the president of Planned Parenthood. This is anything but a cushy job. It is divisive, it is political, and it is something that everyone has an opinion on. What made you decide to go for it? My son, Eli. Well, my son didn't tell me to go for the job because at the time <laughs> Very I think he was eight months old. <laughs> <laughs> Very precocious. Um, no, um, actually, it was. It would it would have been because of him that I didn't take this job because. I wanted to spend time with him. Um, I had just figured out, coming back from maternity leave, how to have my very demanding job in Baltimore while being a mom um, without family help around. Um, My husband is wonderful, but we don't have any other family in in the United States. Um, And I had just figured out how to even manage my existing job and the demands of of that that role while being a mom. Um, And I'm... I really wasn't looking for another job. I didn't want to leave my city and my dream job of serving the residents of Baltimore. But I also thought so much about the future that I wanted for my son. And it's a future where 
people have more rights than we do, not fewer. I mean, what parent wants their children to grow up in a world where they have fewer rights? And so much of the work that I was doing too was talking to young people. I was mentoring students in Baltimore, and after 2016. So many of them said, "Well, what can I now be doing? How can I be fighting back?" And the lesson that I gave to all of them was, "You cannot wait. Don't wait for that perfect opportunity. Don't wait to make a difference. There is the fierce urgency of now more than ever when our health and our freedoms are on the line like never before." And I thought, if I'm giving that advice to my students, if I'm saying to them. Don't wait for the cavalry. The cavalry is not coming because we are the ones that we've been waiting for. If that's what I'm saying to my students, then how can I not be doing everything that I can right now when everything is on the line? You're the first Asian American in this job and the first physician to lead the organization in 50 years. You're in a different position than a lot of your predecessors. How does that change your outlook and goals in this role? Well, I first want to say that I greatly admire all my predecessors who came before and what they brought to the movement for women's rights and and healthcare.、Um, I bring the same thing that each person who is unique brings, which is my unique story, my authentic story of who I am. I bring to the work in Planned Parenthood my own lived experience of being an immigrant, of watching my mother go to Planned Parenthood. Growing up, I knew Planned Parenthood as the place that she went to for her healthcare when she couldn't get care anywhere else. I bring to this work my own experience of being a scared teen who wanted information about birth control. I didn't know where to go, so I went to Planned Parenthood. I bring my lived experience too of being a physician, who worked alongside doctors, nurses at Planned Parenthood, and seeing how much reproductive healthcare is siloed, stigmatized, and attacked in a way that we would never find acceptable for any other aspect of healthcare. And because those are the lenses that I bring into my work, that's also how I see Planned Parenthood. I see Planned Parenthood as a national healthcare organization that provides essential, life-saving care that millions of people across the country depend on. We do advocacy because we have to do advocacy because our health and our rights are on the line, and we do advocacy as a necessary vehicle to protect our care. You've talked a lot about your story, and you just went through、um, the stories about your mom and your sister. Why do you think、um, you've decided to bring that into the job with you? Is it to change the image of Planned Parenthood? Is it to create、um, a certain sense of you as a leader? I bring those personal stories with me because I can't not do it. I believe the most important characteristic of me as a leader is my authenticity. And my real self, I can't not bring in my all the aspects of my identity, because otherwise I would not be true to myself, and I would not be able to look at myself in the mirror and be true to the values that I hold dear. Your entire life, you have been 
nonstop. You have achieved so much in a relatively short period of time. Have you ever felt like you were getting burnt out? And, you know, when you talk about obviously your work in, in health, it's not just the physical, it's also the mental part of it. How do you take care of yourself? To be honest, I don't think I've been taking great care of myself. And I worry about this. And in fact, I have a lot of self-blame when it comes to the lack of self-care too. Because as you said, I, I know how important that self-care is. Then the self-care is not just with our physical health, it's also with our mental health because mental health is just as an important part of our overall well-being. I knew coming into this job that it would be, as you said, nonstop, and it has been nonstop. I chose to, for the first seven months of my job, to do a listening tour around the country. And I visited 28 of our affiliates that represent 80% of our total patient volume across Planned Parenthood. I mean, I did that because I wanted to experience the lives of our frontline doctors and nurses and and um, volunteers and staff. And it was an incredible experience. But as a result of that, I didn't see my family. I don't think I ate particularly well. I don't think I exercised particularly well. And it definitely has a toll on my own well-being. I wrote just last week about my experience with a miscarriage that I had just a few weeks ago. I'm sorry to hear that. And I I appreciate your um I appreciate that thank you and you know it, I hadn't intended to write about my miscarriage right I mean it was I actually was hoping that I would write a very different story and tell a very different story as a pregnant president of Planned Parenthood and what we stand for and what that means for our values but I wrote about my story in part because I felt so much shame, and sadness, and actually so much self-blame that I did not think that I or anyone else should experience. I mean, I've counseled dozens of women and families in the ER who have gone through pregnancy loss, and I would tell them every time that there's nothing that they could have done differently. But yet, even though I knew the medical facts I still blamed myself all the time. And I thought, well, what if I traveled less? What if I didn't have so many late nights? What if I had less stress? And I do think I need to do a better job of self-care. But I also wanted to tell that story because it is the story of every woman. And that story is also core to who I am and why I do this work. What's been the hardest part of the job so far? What you might expect, which is all the people um, attacking Planned Parenthood and the work that we do, I'd say it's the disconnect between these attacks that are happening and what I see on the ground. I mean, what I see in visiting our health centers is this exceptional, high-quality health care that is a gold standard. I mean, having worked in different hospitals and health systems around the country, I can say that the type of care provided at Planned Parenthood is exceptional. It's about the whole patient. We may be known for our work in reproductive health care, but if somebody comes in for birth control, we also would help them if they are victims of 
intimate partner violence, if they need connections to health insurance and housing. Um, we would also assist them with referrals for addiction treatment. Some of our health centers now do work with mental health, and we are expanding our work with prenatal care and postpartum care. I mean, there's so much great work that's being done, and I have incredible frustration that these stories are not being told, and Planned Parenthood is not being recognized as the essential healthcare provider that we are all around the country. And that is the hardest part of my job. What do you think Planned Parenthood looks like 50 years from now? I hope that in 50 years, there is no more debate about what we in medicine know to be true, which is that abortion care is health care, that reproductive health care is essential and fundamental to all aspects of health care and cannot be separated from it, and that one could get the full spectrum of reproductive health care no matter who they are, no matter where they are in the country, um, and no matter if they can pay, that they can get that full spectrum of care anywhere across the country. It should not just be at Planned Parenthood that they receive access to reproductive health care. It should be in their doctor's office. It should be through telemedicine. It should be wherever it is that people are. And I hope that Planned Parenthood is seen as leading this movement for exceptional health care at the same time that we're leading the movement for women's rights and the rights and freedoms of all people. Dr. Wen, we're going to switch gears to our last segment, which is um, our lightning round. And we will ask you uh, rapid fire questions. And uh, your your goal is to answer as quickly as you can. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. Okay. I don't think I'm very good at this, but I will <laughs> do my best. First job. Playing piano in my church. Worst job. Not necessarily my worst job, but the worst experience was when my mother passed away and I was working with cancer patients um, and she had just passed away from cancer. Oh, gosh. Worst professional mistake you ever made? Not recognizing all the stakeholders that are involved um, in one of my jobs in, in, in Baltimore, not consulting the right people before a decision was made. First call when you get good news. To my husband. First call when you get bad news. To my husband. What's your guilty pleasure? I, this will sound a little bit strange, but I, I have recently gotten into bar and Pilates, and I really love attending bar and Pilates classes. That is not a guilty pleasure, but <laughs> I will accept it. I'm going to... It's a healthy pleasure. That is, that is a healthy pleasure. Yeah. What is... Uh, oh, ice cream. I, I, okay. I eat a lot of ice that's cream. A good there we go. What's yes. the last show that you watched on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon? Last show you binged? We are, my husband and I are watching The Crown. Oh, so good. Um, when was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh, I negotiate all the time in my job because that is my job to negotiate all kinds of, of different things that involve me and the organization that I represent. What's your go-to interview question when you're hiring people? My go-to question is, what do you see yourself doing in the next five to 10 years, that's your dream job. How do people know when you're stressed? Working in the ER, I have to do exactly the opposite of everybody else when they're under stress. So I get very calm when I'm under stress. Oh, maybe you can and teach people me People who that. know me well know that. <laughs> what is your shameless plug? 
my shameless plug is that reproductive health care is health care and that health care has to be viewed as a fundamental human right, not a privilege available only to some. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you both very much. And thank you for all the incredible work that you do every day. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Dr. Lena Wen, a fascinating person, and I think it was a great interview. When we spoke to her on the phone, she said she did have one edit to her interview. She wanted to change her answer to what is your guilty pleasure. Her answer is bubble tea. Oh, still not much of a guilty pleasure. She's got to work on that one. I agree. So thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skimmed from the Couch. And if you want even more skim in your feed, we have a daily news podcast, Skim This. It drops every evening at 5 p.m. and it gives you context on the news of the day. Today will actually be the 100th episode. We're so excited about it. Go find it and subscribe. And of course, we have our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and info you need to start your day. You can sign up at theskim.com. That's two M's for a little bit something extra. 